Table Topics, the general advice and discussion podcast from the RPG Academy. I am Michael, and this is Table Topics number 57, Looking Back. In this episode, Caleb and I look back at some previous episodes and specifically some of the comments that those episodes have generated. We uh, review some things that were sent in to us by listeners James, Dean, Peter, um, Andrew, maybe some others I'm not thinking of right now, and just kind of uh, use their discussion with us as a jumping off point for further discussion. Uh, I thought this episode turned out very well. I was very happy with the quality and caliber of the feedback that we had gotten, and I look forward to hearing more in, uh, from future and uh, some of the more recent episodes. So here you go. Here is Table Topics number 57, Looking Back. So this is Michael here with another exciting episode of Table Topics, and uh, I have brought along with me, as usual, my favorite co-host and yours, Caleb G. Wait. I'm sorry, the Caleb G. Yeah. Don't forget the V, because that's super duper important. Thank you. Well, there's the other one, and then people will get confused. Yeah, he, he's the one that hosts your uh, your other shows for you. That's right. He, he's my uh, RPG Academy co-host instead of the RPG Academy co-host. Yep, yep, totally different program. So, Caleb, how are you tonight, sir? Oh, I'm doing quite well. Um, thank you for asking. Uh, definitely been busy getting some stuff ready for the site for our various Patreon rewards. Uh, so that has been keeping me busy with writing and... Uh, preparing content, uh, always busy thinking of big projects and what we want to do down the road. Uh, so I've been uh, I've been quite busy lately. How about you? I'm doing very well. Thank you for asking. I uh, got some feedback today on your plot pack because you did the one for August, and uh, one of our newest patrons, which we want to give a shout out to him as well, Eric. Uh, who backed us at the master student program. So he will be getting a game. We will be running for him and a couple other people, including yourself. So this is our second Patreon game in a row where we one of us gets to play in it in addition to the other one running it, which is awesome. Very uh, but thank you very much, Eric, for being a listener, first of all, being a fan and now being a patron. And I don't think we've given a shout out to Randy, he of the green shirt, that is also a new patron to our site. So, uh, Randy, thank you for being a listener, and thank you for being a patron. So, those are up on our patron wall on the podcast. I'll be honest, I'm actually hating that page right now because it's just ugly. I want to do something different with it. I'm not smart enough to figure that out, so maybe I'll get to it eventually. Uh, I also want to do a a quick shout-out to some of our new contributors. Uh, Rocky, so far, is the only one who's actually sent something into us, but I'm setting up a faculty page. It it is created at the moment, but it's private. It's secret. You guys can't see it. Only I can. But each of us that are on the podcast will have a short bio about ourselves and a picture or an image that we want to use. Mine's done. Uh, There's some guy named Caleb something who still needs to send me his. Uh, Rocky's is up. Clancy's is up. And like. Oh yeah! Oh, the other one. Okay, never mind. That's the other one. Uh, so this is like an uh, this is a Travis situation. This is not the the Caleb that you're thinking of. It's a different. Oh Caleb yeah, yeah, yeah. Related to the show. Yeah, I, I wouldn't be that lazy. It's I'm totally, totally professional. Uh, but we're gonna get that set up so we have some people that are gonna start contributing to the site. And just a, just a reminder because I still get questions. Uh, we do host 
stuff if you guys want to send it to us, specifically adventures. So if you have a short adventure that you've written, if you have a full-blown module that you've written, but you've not necessarily published it, if you have a cool NPC you want to, like from one of your games you want to throw out, a build that you think is the most badass build you can build, let us know, send it to us. We have places on the site that we will put it up. We don't pay you for it, but we also don't charge for it. We are simply a repository for people to come and get free content that's user-generated. One of our goals is to eventually be one of the go-to destinations for people to get free content. If they're like, hey, I need an adventure for tonight, come to our site, go to the system that you want to run, and then bam, you'll have your your pick of many, many different types of adventures. So to do that, we need more content sent in from you guys. But that's not what we're here to talk about tonight, Caleb. What are we here to talk about? Here to talk about, well, really ourselves. Uh, <laughs> um, over the past couple weeks, we have gone over lots of different topics and ideas in our Table Topics shows. And tonight, we are going to do a little bit of a recap going back to some of these episodes where listeners have given us new ideas and new feedback that we wanted to talk about on air and share with everybody else. So we're doing a little bit of a, uh, a table topic redux, flashback, and so on. Other words I cannot think of at the moment about time travel. But we are going to start, as we hope to start every show going forward, at least for the foreseeable future, with a new segment that is help. We're going to try to return to our roots. As we've said many, many times, we want to be a onboarding experience for new players and new GMs. And we feel like we've kind of got away from that a little bit. We've got some really good feedback from that episode that we asked about, you know, are we truly introductory uh, information? And, and the consensus was kind of in the middle, but we don't really want you to take too far of a step back because that might alienate the people who've been with us for a while. So one of the things, and we're working on many, but one of the things we're going to do is every episode, we're going to have a new segment called Gamers Lexicon. And we are going to explain or describe or talk about a theme or a term that would come up in an RPG, because some of that lingo is a little bit uh, unwieldy, and it can be off-putting and confusing to people. And I thought it would be a great idea to start by actually defining what lexicon means, in case people don't know. Uh, Lexicon is the vocabulary of a person, language, or branch of knowledge. So we are going to talk about the vocabulary or branch of knowledge as it refers to gamers, and specifically RPGers. So, Caleb, what is our first term or theme, or another word that means what we mean but we can't think of it yet, that we're going to talk about tonight for this segment, Gamers Lexicon? The first phrase we're going to talk about. Phrase, that's it, phrase. Good job. I got it, yay. I just just earned my keep for the week. The first phrase we're going to talk about is uh, a sandbox game versus an on the rails game. So you kind of get a twofer here with our uh, first uh, lexicon segment. So in my mind, when I first talk to new people who are new to the game, or especially people who want to be DMs, I often will give them advice that tells them not to try to run a sandbox game, but to run an on-the-rails game. And even when we did our interview with Cthulhu and Friends, when we asked Veronica for the, the advice she would give to a new DM, and that's, that was part of her advice as well, is to have it on the rails. And for me, what that means is 
do you allow your players to do pretty much anything they want? In some cases, that's the illusion of choice, but do you provide the illusion of choice to your players? Or do you create a situation where they pretty much have to follow your story point A to point B to point C? I think for most gamers, you would prefer the sandbox approach because you feel like you have a lot more choice. You feel like you have a lot more control and it doesn't feel as much like a video game. And the thing about RPGs is that you can do anything. But as a new DM, I think it is very useful to start off a game that does pretty much go in the sequence you expect so that you don't have to spend so much time over preparing. So, Kale, what would be a good example of an on-the-rails introductory adventure? Uh, well, in that context, uh, a, a good example would be you could start the adventure with your PCs in a tavern being given a treasure map by a bard. That's point A. So they get the thing. Point B in the, on the rail is the adventure to get to where the treasure map leads them. And point C is uh, exploring the dungeon to find the treasure. So you get the map, you travel, you look for the treasure. There's no leeway. There's no going off the map. There's no stopping along the way to rescue a damsel in distress. You're, you're going from point A to point B to point C, and that's where you conclude that little arc. And I think as a DM, some ways that you can sort of cheat is how you handle your transitions. And so the first scene is that you're in a tavern and there's a mysterious person that catches your eye. Most gamers are going to want to interact with that thing. It's like having a, in a video game, the one thing that doesn't look like everything else. So, you know, you can touch it or click on it. So this is that person. So your characters want to touch it and click on it. This person gives them this map to this mysterious treasure and then use the DM say, and the next day you find yourself preparing to go on this trip. What would you like to do to get prepared? So you're still giving them a little bit of freedom that they can select the gear that they want, maybe make some arrangements. It could be a small RP moment between them and like a spouse if they have one, or maybe the town guard they work with. But you've set up that you're doing this thing. You're going to this treasure, but you give them a little bit of leeway on how they do it. You could even make it more on the rails and just say, the next day, you find yourself through the Forest of Shadows as you're walking where the treasure map leads you when Out of the Shadows launches Raw, which would be Combat Encounter A. So that's how I would say a first adventure is, is perfectly fine to do that. If, if, you, uh, if you have a new group of players or if this is the first time you're DMing, do not be afraid to do that. You want to eventually get to the point, in, in my mind, in my opinion, a more satisfying game is one that's more sandboxy. So what would be a good example of a sandbox type scenario, Caleb? Well, a sandbox type scenario could be uh, where the PCs finish an adventure in a new town. You have described this new town to them and you have given them uh, several points of interest, maybe a temple, a tavern, a wizard's academy, uh, and the Duke's palace and you've given them a little bit of local flavor, the types of street urchins they find, the, the merchant district and what goes on there. Maybe there's an auction house. Uh, maybe you talk a little bit about uh, the, the guards that patrol the city and what they do, and there's something unique about them. And then you simply look to the players and say, 
and what do you want to do? You give them an environment, a sandbox, and ask them to go play in it, to build something, to make a choice. Now, I think what's important here is what you said a little bit earlier, Michael, is that it really boils down to being the illusion of choice. Yes, you've given them an entire city to play in, in this hypothetical, but you've kind of led their decision a little bit, maybe by giving them a couple key points to try to draw their interest, and you haven't really given them the complete freedom. You're still giving them some structure. Uh, it, it, essentially, we're talking about the walls of the sandbox, the walls of the city. While they are free to do whatever they want, and you're asking them to do what they want, they, they don't have carte blanche to rewrite the world. <laughs> you, you've given them a, a box to play in, and you're asking them to follow the rules of that box. Right. Even a sandbox still has borders. They're just a little bit more open or some, some, in some ways invisible. And so if, an example to a newer DM is if you want to try a sandbox game. So let's say you've set up a city. And you know in the city there's some corruption and there's actually a power play going on between the local thieves guild and now this new corrupt political group that actually is actually trying to muscle in on the thieves guild. And you know that's sort of the overarching story that you want to play with, but you still want to give your characters freedom to say, okay, you're in the city. What do you want to do? The players, who knows literally what they're going to come up with. It is it is impossible to say what they might come up with. But some common things that they're going to find a tavern to hang out in, see what kind of trouble they can get into. If they're part of some sort of guild, they're probably going to check into their guild hall and see if they can get free lodgings. If they've just come back from an adventure, they probably want to sell some loot or maybe look at up, upping their equipment. And then all you have to do is sprinkle in this story into those situations. So if they decide to go to the temple... Well, maybe the temple they're used to going to is closed down. It's been redistricted by the politicians because they didn't like it there. And so now you have this this temple master, this priest, whatever, saying, you know, it's just things are getting worse by the day. This new politician, he's doing all these crazy rules. He's forcing us to the outskirts. I think he secretly worships Baylor, the demon god, and he doesn't want any of these temples to be around. You're not forcing a combat encounter, but you're reintroducing this political play if they decide to go to the town bazaar and try to sell their loot have a thieves guild a member rob one of them or rob someone nearby if they either fight them or chase them down and then he can talk about how they're getting more aggressive because of what's going on so you're still introducing the elements of your story no matter where they go you still put them in front of them in some way or another so it's still the illusion of choice but they're going to get to the same place eventually right it's very important here when you are uh, giving players a sandbox one that you have some overall idea now there are plenty of game masters who work completely on improv and they don't have any idea of what's going to happen when they come to the table they don't have a city they don't have a concept of the political undertow or the thieves guild doing xyz they just let the players talk and riff back and forth if you can do that, you're an experienced player, you're an experienced game master, you're an experienced improv artist, and more power to you. Not everyone can do that, though. So don't kill yourself trying to get to that point. Take it little by little. Absolutely. Michael, what you 
what you just went over was basically kind of the baby steps to get there. You come up with a city, you come up with a couple elements within the city, and then you come up with a couple story ideas. You let the players mix up how those pieces go together, and you pick the right uh, opportunities to reveal based on what they are doing. So you might have, okay, well, I, a political intrigue would be fun. Um, also, might, what might be fun would be the cleric who's now worshipping a demon. And who knows what's going to happen. If, if the players, uh, by default, take you towards the political side of things, just run with that. You know, if they want to go to the palace and talk to people, if they want to do more gather information and more social role-playing, jump into that side of your story and reveal those features. You know, this type of, of game mastering requires you to really adapt very quickly to what your players are doing, more so than in a regular game where you're just adapting to their attacks or, or a regular skill check or something. Right. And uh, the last thing I'll say, and then we'll wrap this up, is um, when you're thinking of doing a sandbox game, create big, play small. And that's the same advice I give for world building, and we will probably will eventually touch on that in this topic as well. So what I mean by that is you may decide that you're going to have this huge arcing story that involves political corruption and thieves' guilds. Great. But when your players are in the town bazaar, they're going to interact with Thrifty Three Fingers. He's going to be one guy who's part of the guild. Or they're going to interact with uh, Francis, the new archbishop of the temple who's in the pocket of the politician. So you don't necessarily have to create thousands of people or NPCs and these webs of connection. You just need one or two people that they interact with and let those people stick around. Don't put people in front of them that are just going to get killed. Let them be somebody they interact with more and more times and then slowly reveal all these webs and connections. But, you know, think big, play small. And then if you want an example of my attempt at running a truly sandbox game, that is what the Made Men games were supposed to be. That was our very first actual play. And I would give myself a B, maybe a B minus on, on how it worked out at being an actual sandbox where the players could do pretty much anything they wanted to do. And if you want an example of an on the rails game, our currently released City of the Damned episodes are about as raily as you can get. But they were designed specifically to be a railed game where the players pretty much went point A to point B to point C. So if you'd like to have an example of maybe what that what the differences would be, then I would suggest you listen to those different uh, series of podcasts and you'll probably see them in action and know what we're talking about. All righty, Caleb. So we're ready to move on to our first review redux topic. And what is that going to be? Uh, well, for our first uh, topic to go back to, uh, we are going to return to uh, the New World campaign, and we are going to dip our toes back into the eternal debate about Nico's paladin and whether or not he was being an asshole for playing a paladin the way he did. So just to quickly sum up, we had uh, Nico was playing a paladin, uh, lawful good, and Rob was playing a cleric who was essentially a necromancer. And again, it's, it was established very clearly in the backgrounds that Rob's character was not evil, but he worshipped death in the cycle of life kind of way. Death was a part of life. 
not uh, not something evil. But Nico's clear or Nico's Paladin had some issues with some of the spells, particularly raise dead and inflict wounds that uh, Rob's character was in, inflicting, and it led to some actual tension at the table, not just between characters, but between players. My initial thought on when I was running the game is I felt that Nico should have, as the more experienced player, sort of backed off a little bit, let things just sort of die down, and not really push the issue, even though his character probably would have. In the process of editing all the episodes and going back, I kind of switched my opinion a little bit because I felt like I thought Nico was trying to have an arc and I kind of think long term he would have come around but he wanted to start with a a stance of unyieldedness black and white and then eventually he would have found a way to work with Rob's character but unfortunately the, the game didn't last that long but James who is one of our most loyal listeners. He he interacts with us pretty much daily on Twitter. He's been a, a huge help to us with retweeting things and just trying to get the word out. And he's one of our patrons. He had a his own kind of take on the situation. And Caleb, would, do you think you could sum up kind of quickly what uh, what James's thought was on that situation? Uh, yeah. Uh, the way to sum this up is actually the last line of James' email. Awesome divine power absolutely no moral gray area. So James' point in uh, this situation is that as a paladin, uh, a paladin is basically the, the avatar of the deity. The, the, the deity's goals and opinions made flesh. So for that fact, uh, a paladin should not and cannot change his opinion. When, when a paladin sees good, he sees good, and when he sees evil, he sees evil. And, and James went on to expand a little bit uh, about possibly the paladin uh, casting atonement or begging for forgiveness for his party members who might be doing the wrong thing in his eyes. And he also brings up that very classic, typical, cliché gaming moment where uh, the party has to very sneakily extract information from a prisoner in such a way that the paladin doesn't notice. Yes, And I've been part of games where this happened. We've all been part of games on both sides of that deception shield. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Now, I think the thing that I thought was interesting is, uh, and James mentions in here that he he does play paladins. I think he even mentions at one point that he plays them quite a lot. And that um, to him, this is a black and white issue. If you're a paladin, you have to follow that path or you're not a paladin. Now, interestingly, we were playing in 5th edition, which does take a little bit of a lighter step in that direction where you have, uh, you could be a paladin who's neutral where in, in the older editions of D&D, you were lawful good. And if your alignment changed, which there was a mechanic in the older editions, that if you were doing things that the DM felt were against your alignment, they could have a little secret chart they were working with, and they would move you towards new alignments based off of your actions. And eventually they could say, okay, James, you are now no longer lawful good. You have now moved to lawful neutral, and you are no longer a paladin. You are now a fighter, and you will never be a paladin again. And that was something that could happen. This was also in the version of the game where it was really freaking hard to be a paladin because if you rolled your stats the way you were supposed to, you had to have two or three prime requisites to get there. And so that was a huge deal. 
So I think part of this opinion from James is probably coming from that version of the game where it was more black and white. And then I thought most interestingly beyond that is he talked about some specific like spells, like the, the atonement spell as a way for the paladin to cast this and basically provide forgiveness to this cleric for casting these spells that are inherently evil, even though they're done for good. So James recognizes that that's something that might need to happen in the game, but then there's still a game answer is there's this atonement spell that you could use. And if he's not high enough level, then maybe he could pray to his God and get like a divine casting of atonement, which would then in the game show that the gods have seen this and they are on one side or the other. I found that to be a very interesting and thought provoking idea that he, he presented there. Yeah, I think that's a good solution. Uh, I think if you are a player who wants to follow this moral absolute, you, you want to stick to these black and white guidelines and the, the spells that James brought up, that type of role playing that James brought up is a way to let the story proceed and not uh, not incur not incur that table player argument that might arise. Right. So uh, going back to the example with Nico and Rob, Nico was probably going to let that play out in the story through role playing, but due to the time constraints of the game, things kind of came to a head. So I- instead of trying to talk it out, instead of trying to argue it out, Nico could have prayed to his dwarven deity to say, I don't want to see this happen, uh, but we have to, so you've got to make it right. So essentially you're kind of shifting the blame a little bit. And well, you're shifting it back to the DM as an NPC, because if the paladin had had came to his deity in, in prayer and said, I'm conflicted, I'm seeing these things that I believe are evil, but they're being done for good, I don't know what to do, and I'm looking for absolution from you on whether I should be okay with this or not. As the DM, I can be his god and say, oh, you're toned. It's cool because I understand these, this situation. It's right. And basically, I'm giving my, my paladin the ability to be okay with it and not violate his oaths. And it, it's a very in-game way to solve it. And it's something that didn't really come up. And I think part of it is that I don't know that we were playing that strict moral version of the Paladin. I, I, and I don't know. I, I just I think it's an interesting idea. I think it's a good idea. Well, I, I think the, the best way to approach all these different ways to answer this specific question is it, it really depends on your players and what they want to do in the game. If someone wants to play a Paladin, when you're doing your character gen, I think as the GM, it's your job to say, Okay, how extreme is this paladin? Is this the the old school absolute morality paladin? Is this a holy fighter who's on a mission and just wants to accomplish his task no matter what way kind of paladin? Is he a a paladin in the sense that he is supporting an ideal or or protecting an ideal or a way of life? All of those are different ways to role-play the Paladin class. And I don't think you should make that assumption when a player says, hey, I'm going to roll a Paladin. I mean, they might not even care. They might, they might just be saying, hey, I think the Paladin class abilities are kind of cool. I want to use them. Right. And you need to prompt 
that reason out of them and get that out of them as they're approaching the class. But that's perfectly valid as well. <laughs> they could be a paladin who doesn't have a divine mission. And so his role playing is why does he have these powers and who gave them to him? <laughs> oh, absolutely. And, um, and I think, again, we've said it recently a lot, but I think that that first session, that pre-session is very important to bring it out on the table and say, Hey, Nico's thinking about playing a paladin. There are some groups and there's some games where it's fun to see how often you can fool the paladin and you can go torture someone and the paladin's fetching water and, and he doesn't know. And it becomes part of the game and it's part of the joke and everyone likes it. The A New World game was not that type of game. And it was, you know, dark, brooding, dangerous. There was some mysteries. It wasn't really a funny-go-lucky type of game. So that was something, it, it created a, a conflict at the table that was unfortunate. And at the end of the day, it came down to the fact that Rob had this character concept that he really liked. And he thought it was the coolest thing in the world that he could reanimate a dead tiger and ride around like Cringer on He-Man. And he was upset when Nico got mad about it. Even though Nico was mad in the game, Rob got upset because he was having the most fun. Like he, as a player, was like, look at what I'm doing. It's awesome. And then you had another player saying, stop that. That's wrong. And even though that was in game, it affected Rob at the table and it was unfortunate and uh, it didn't ruin the game. Absolutely. I don't think so at all, but it, it, it added some tension that we could have done without. So I would say in the future, if I were to have that one, I would have the pre session, which uh, would probably eliminate that. And two, I would look at some ways inside the game to resolve it rather than what I did was which is going outside of the game and talking to Nico and Rob and trying to figure out ways for them to role play differently to make it work instead of, as James suggested, in the game, find ways to make their characters okay with it. Yeah, there's a lot of different solutions to that problem. And I think ultimately one of the biggest overall solutions is that you have to use the uh, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas rule. And we're playing pretend here. Yes, we're invested in our characters and our choices and what we want to do. But if the paladin is yelling at the cleric, that's not Nico yelling at Rob. Right. And nothing, I'm not implying anything bad about either of them or their actions or calling any sort of judgment, but it's based on experience and it's based on your ability to simultaneously invest in a character and distance yourself from the character. And, and that's just based on how long you've been at the table. I would agree with that completely. All right. Well, I think we, we can put a pin in that one, but we will open it back up to one, James, if we did a terrible job representing your opinions, we apologize. Don't say Please anything. Correct us. We don't care. And if there's, don't say anything. Yep. <laughs> and if there's anyone else out there that has uh, a similar situation or a story you'd like to share or a different viewpoint or take on this issue, please send it in. Uh, if we have a chance, we might cover it on a future show or at, at worst, we might throw it up as a comment onto this episode as a way to keep the conversation going. So now we're ready to move into our second redo. This is a, from uh, the, the original question was from Pop Culture Cube. And he was asking about setting up a situation where you were doing telecommuting gaming, kind of like virtual tabletops, but only one person was commuting. Everyone else was actually at that table. And I had shared that I tried that once and it didn't work very well. It, it just 
multiple reasons, but I had a very poor experience. Uh, you brought up that under the right circumstances, it probably could work if you had the right setup and if you had the right player that was a person off. And uh, very recently, we got a comment from Dean from Oregon, and uh, he mentioned that this is how he plays. He plays like this all the time, and it works pretty well. So can you kind of hit the highlights on his comment there for us? Uh, yeah. So Dean sent in a pretty detailed uh, explanation of his setup. The high points, though, are that, one, he had a group of players that were okay with this structure. So the one person who was telecommuting in versus everyone else at the table, these were players who worked well together. They had the give and take of waiting for that occasional lag from the one person on the camera. So these were first off players who were experienced and willing to work with this restriction and incorporate everybody. And second off, uh, that he had the right equipment to make it happen. He had, um, Dean tells us about a uh, good quality laptop and webcam that he picked up. He has the webcam set up in uh, a way that picks up the whole table and the map and the minis. Uh, and so that whoever is looking through the camera on the computer can see everyone at the table and the GM. Uh, so he gives us a lot of information about the setup, logistically how it all works. Uh, essentially, he shows us that what you and I talked about, that you have to have the right players and the right equipment, works fine. So we were right. Yay! <laughs> Yay, us! So, Dean, thank you for sending that in. I believe that was a comment actually on episode 55. So if you want the specifics as to what uh, webcam he's using and the specifics about where his camera is set up, you can check out the comments for that episode. Uh, but at the end of the day, it, it can work, and it works well from him, for him. Essentially, he had one person that had to leave the group and moved away, and they didn't want to stop gaming, so they found a way to make it work. And I'm very happy to hear that, that they that their group did not have to stop just because one person moved away, which unfortunately happens way too frequently. Uh, now with the invention of VTTs, that's gotten probably less common. But yeah, thank you so much, Dean, for sending in your, your uh, setup. I'm, I'm glad it works for you. And again, if there's anyone else out there that has a similar setup or a different idea or a different take, we'd like to hear that as well. Uh, and even, and honestly, Dean, if you'd like to send in something a little bit more detailed that we could post um, as a as a, a how-to for other people, don't be don't be afraid to send it in, and we'll get it set up in a way so that other people can look at exactly what you got going on. Maybe some pictures and that kind of stuff would be great. Uh, so that one was pretty short, but uh, that's just the way this uh, this game works. When you go into the past, you don't know what's going to happen. So we were ready to move on to our third redo. And uh, this one really isn't a redo as much as just someone commented on something we said and they wanted to share a similar story. Uh, we were talking about how to incorporate death and dying into your game. Now, we talked about that general concept on quite a few shows. And this specific one, though, we got off on the tangent of how to purposefully include death, maybe moving into the spirit life, or having a player come back as a spirit or possess someone new. And we, we were just brainstorming all these different ways to do it. So uh, Peter sent us an example of how he used that scenario in one of his games. So this isn't a you-could-do-this kind of suggestion. This is a here's-what-I-did-and-here's in his story, why it worked kind of situation. The, the bullet points 
uh, are that they had a rogue in their party who ended up failing a fortitude save, and she faded into nothingness. Well, instead of just writing off the character, uh, Peter says he used that death to his advantage and brought back the rogue's spirit during following adventures. Specifically, he notes a Halloween-themed adventure where the rogue's spirit showed up to uh, play a part of the story. And then in following adventures, uh, her spirit showed up to give cryptic clues uh, about characters' fates and destinies. Uh, she became kind of an open-ended element in the game that Peter could use however he wanted, potentially bringing her back or letting the players or letting the characters uh, summon her back if certain things happened. It was just a good example of how to incorporate uh, a dead character and keep them in the game. Maybe the player really loved that character and didn't want to see them go, but, well, I'm dead. Okay, time to roll a new character. But they, but as a GM, you keep that persona, that that character rolling in the game. Right, and the thing I was going to mention there is that I really liked is that it's a way to bring back a beloved PC as well. So even though this isn't necessarily a game where they're going to continue to play that spirit continuously and, and on and on, but it's a way that like maybe you, you if you only play sporadically, maybe you get the group the group together only so often for whatever reason. And this is a way to bring back those those characters, and uh, it kind of makes like a connection. Even though you may be months in between games, when you have that game and you happen to bring in this uh, dead PC, I just I feel like it kind of creates a connection at the table that you may not otherwise have. As a little bit of a tangent. Since we're already going back to the idea of what to do with a character uh, when they die, something that uh, our friends over at Cthulhu and Friends do is when a character gets killed, the Game Master takes that character sheet, and that dead person becomes an NPC for the Game Master to do with as she likes. Specifically in a Cthulhu game, that can have terrifying consequences. Uh, but that is definitely something you could try if that happens in your game. So if the rogue dies, the, as a GM, you take that character sheet and you decide what to do with that rogue. If she's dead, she's dead. But if she comes back as a ghost, if she comes back as an angry spirit, maybe she, uh, I don't know, her spirit embodies a knife and becomes an intelligent artifact or weapon and the new rogue gets it or, or who knows, but that becomes a tool now in your arsenal as the game master. So just another method, just another way that you can work with death when it happens in your game. Yeah, I think in that sort of sinister version works very well in a Call of Cthulhu game. It may not work as well in a high fantasy uh, other than I do like the idea of maybe coming back as like an artifact, their 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 mind gets transplanted, their essence gets transported into maybe even something they're wearing. Like if they're wearing magical items when they die, and of course everyone's going to loot the body, 
So maybe there's an essence that remains in whatever their favored weapon was, or if they have, you know, if they don't have that many magic items, the one magic item they had, maybe the one they were still carrying, uh, maybe if they have like a magical armor and they still died, maybe that triggers some sort of uh, ancestral power because the the magic armor failed yet again. Maybe there's a long line of essences and that actually makes the weapon stronger because it's it tries not to fail so it was a plus two but now it's a plus three i mean you could do a lot of things with that character rather than just going ah, eh, you're dead and then roll another character and if you're in a type of game where that sort of legacy matters then i suggest you try to do something with it if you're in a game that you know as soon as someone dies they're like ah, i wanted to play a bard anyways i don't know that it would add a whole lot so it really depends as most things do in your group and the game that you're running Exactly. But that's a great story hook. I mean, what if the item got this legacy power and the PCs that survived failed to acquire it or someone stole it from them? So now they have a new quest to hunt down the remains of their fallen comrade in this magical ring or armor or whatnot. So your your story can take an entire side quest arc and get a little bit more exciting, a little bit more invested in what's happening. I also like the idea of uh, playing up whatever the the role-playing hooks or bonds, flaws, and ideas, if you're playing 5th edition, of that character, and that you take that armor, that weapon, and then you absorb that as yours, because like their thing is they always had to protect the innocent. Well, now you also have to always protect the innocent, or you're compelled in some way to do so. So yeah, you could do a lot of cool things with that, and again, I think legacy is the right word. You can preserve the legacy of those fallen characters rather than just moving on to something else. I like it. I like it. This tangent brought to you by Michael and Caleb. All right. (laughs) All right. So our final redo of the night is another one from James. In this one, he commented on the conversation that Caleb and I had during our A New World Postmortem. And um, it came up that I would not allow a PC to socially dictate what another PC did with a skill check. So essentially, one of the characters wanted to intimidate another character. And I'm like, well, I don't really allow you to do that. And Caleb had a had a different viewpoint. And he also brought up uh, our friends at Cthulhu and Friends. And that is something that does happen in their games. And after the conversation, I pretty much agree with Caleb that it probably should work. But in the specific instance that we were talking about, because I had new players, I felt it was probably still the right decision there. And uh, and James had some comments as well, and he had some references to a game that he played in. And, uh, and again, as, as always, I'll let Caleb kind of recap it. But essentially, he is saying that it's not a black and white thing where one role, you're instantly like mentally dominated and you have to do what someone says. But it should be as a role-playing cue that, okay, this person is intimidating. They rolled a successful intimidate check. How is your character going to roleplay intimidation? And then you should give pluses or minuses based off of vastly different things that could have happened in the game. The last time they did this, what just happened in the game, alignments, classes, uh, relationships previous to this. So there's a lot of stuff that he brought in that we were kind of discussing this in a vacuum. And I think because of that, we got very clinical black and white plus minus. And he was kind of bringing out the fact that this is an evolving situation and there's a lot of mis- moving components. So can you better explain what I just tried to explain, Caleb? <laughs> As usual, my job is to summarize your summary. Uh, essentially, <laughs> what, Yes, that happens a lot. It really does. We, we've developed quite the dynamic here. 
we, we have our tangents, and then we have a summary, and then we have another summary, and then we move on. So Let me sum up. Now there's too much. Let Caleb sum up. <laughs> That's going on a t-shirt. Wait, what's that's a Princess Bride line, isn't it? Sort of. The, the, the Princess Bride is, let me explain. No, no, there's too much. Let me sum up. Let me sum up. <laughs> so it'd be like, let Michael sum up. No, no, there's too much. Like Caleb, Caleb sum up. Sum up. <laughs> I like it. New shirt. So um, <laughs> what James gave us uh, essentially here was that when PCs are rolling what we could call social skills against each other, diplomacy, intimidation, any way to influence influence a, a PC into doing something, it still boils down to opposed roles. Where if I'm rolling an intimidate, you might get a will save against it. Or uh, I roll a bluff and you oppose it with perception or sense motive. So it's still two compared roles. But what James brings up is that the GM needs to step in and make sure those roles embody what's been happening in the game. So if I'm defending against an Intimidate and I am a very strong-willed character, I would get a bonus to that. If the role that I am fighting against plays off of my alignment or my backstory or off of an NPC that I have some sort of interaction with, that is going to alter the nature of my role positively or negatively. So essentially here, James says, yes, let the social roles happen, but don't let them happen in a black and white world. Give them some influence based on the happenings in the game so they feel like an extension of the characters, but then also use those roles as cues for the role playing. So if I'm intimidating you with an 18 and you get a will save and you get a 17, that's telling us in role playing, you know, I'm, I'm going to give in, but maybe it's reluctant. Or temporary. Like if it's a 17 and an 18 situation, maybe you back down then. But as soon as that person goes to sleep that night, when you're on watch, you wake up all the other characters and say, okay, no, seriously, we're not doing that, right? Exactly. Exactly. Unlike an attack role that is resolved right there, social roles can play out and they can have an impact on later moments in the game. So I think James' examples were, were really well phrased and, and a good source of information on how to play that out in a real game situation. What, what I also liked, I want to mention there too, is that, that, I, that I liked was that he, he insinuated or he, he explained that if the person who's doing the intimidation or the coercion or the seduction or whatever the skill is, they don't necessarily go to every PC and one by one knock them down like chess pieces until they control the group. They'll pick whoever's being the most vocal opposition and just try to get them on their side and then let that sway the group. So it's not, you know, again, you have the, the paladin who wants to stick to the mission and the thief wants to take this opportunity to do this easy score that will help them down the road. You can either hit everyone else so that everyone agrees with you and then try to get everyone to go against the paladin, or you just go to the paladin and you trick them, coerce them, seduce them, intimidate them, whatever the case may be to try to get them to listen 
because then the group will go your way. And I, I said, I think to sum it up as best I can is that we were discussing this in a vacuum and he put it into a lot of real world situations, real game world situations that there's a lot of numbers and back and forth and alignment should come into play, previous relationships, current things happening in the game. And, uh, and it can work and it can be fun. It's not just, oh, I rolled a bad roll, so now I have to do what your character says. That's not fun for me. We took it to that level to try to come up with stark contrasts to make a point. And his point was that's not really how games are played. And, and we kind of dumbed it down to the point that it maybe wasn't even a realistic portrayal of that situation anymore. So I agree with him again. I thought uh, both, both points that James brought up were very good. So thank you very much again, James. Please, from this point forward, uh, if anyone else has any good stories about social interaction in your game between your player characters, send it on in. If you have any examples where it went horribly and you want to share that, go ahead and send those in too. We, we always like to see, uh, see more stories, more examples, more real-world situations. Absolutely. All right, and so our last topic for the night isn't as much as a redo as uh, we got a comment on the website that we wanted to talk a little bit about. But unfortunately, we don't have a lot of expertise in what the uh, listener was asking. So we're going to kind of throw it back to that listener and to everyone else and try to help educate us. Uh, so this came in from uh, Andrew, that one GM. And we were talking about basically games pretty much all have combat. Like combat is an essential part of many RPGs. It's the primary form of conflict. So he was asking if we had ever played in any RPGs that don't use that or don't don't necessarily have uh, that as a central rule, or maybe even an RPG that doesn't have combat at all or doesn't have rules for combat, and then some ways that you could incorporate non-combat encounters into a game that is combat-centric, like a D20 D&D system. Uh, so for myself... I've never played in a game that did not have combat mechanics and, and, and in a lot of ways a focus on combat. Probably Fate would be the, the best example that I could come up with, and I've only played that a little. And it still has combat. The biggest thing there is that the combat works the same way as everything else. There's no separate combat mechanics like in a, in a D20 game where it's this is combat and this is everything else. Caleb, have you ever played an RPG that didn't really have combat rules or a big focus on combat? No, no, uh, I have not. And I, I think that's a little bit about my personal preference. Uh, we all know that I like the crunchy combat side of things, so I probably would not uh, seek out uh, a system that had, um, uh, that had no combat rules whatsoever. Fate is definitely uh, one, one game, though, where you could play the entire game with no combat. Uh, the, w the way the rules are set up and the way the skills are created, uh, you do not have to do combat. Well, okay, let me rephrase that. In any game, you don't have to do combat. If you wanted to play D&D &D without fighting, you could. You just have to have the right players and the right written campaign, and it's all skill checks and, and social interaction. Or a DM who doesn't do combat, like, like me. Right, because you never do combat. I mean, that's just... Ever. One boring, one boring skill check after another with you. But if we look at fate, the rules of fate are about creating advantage, uh, advantageous situations, and then responding to them. 
while some of the the skills in fate are phrased for fighting like brawling or shooting or whatnot you don't have to use those and while some of the actions you take in fate uh like an attack or a defense those don't have to mean that you're punching someone or pulling a trigger that could mean i am i am in how i speak in how i'm interacting with you that is considered an offensive action if i'm uh, attempting to intimidate you with words only as as we sit across the table debating a topic that's that can be an a quote offensive speech and then you defend against my speech with your diplomacy or your intelligence so uh, without any experience i think fate would be the easiest way to do that so the thing that i'm probably thinking of is fiasco is probably the the game that comes to my mind, is, which is, from my understanding, I've never played Fiasco. I did watch uh, the tabletop episode where it was on, that there really is no combat mechanics because it truly is just a storytelling game. So that mm-hmm. might be an example of a game which I do want to play Fiasco at some point. Um, so that one, we, we are going to kind of throw it back to you, Andrew. Uh, do, is there a specific game that you have played that this this would would qualify that you want to talk about or if there's any other listeners who have had experiences with fiasco or any other games that would be considered rpg but don't really have a focus on combat or don't have combat at all give us some examples and maybe we will use that as a future trial episode which is where we play new games and then record them so we could potentially do a fiasco uh, trial or if there's other games out there that would do that because uh, i'm definitely interested in trying it but I'm just having a hard time wrapping my head around how it would work, and that's just because I've played D&D for 28 years. But definitely would like like to give it a shot. Now, the other part of his question Andrew asked was about incorporating non-combat encounters into a game that does have combat, uh, like a combat-centric D20 system. So, Caleb, do you have any ideas or suggestions for Andrew or in general about how you can effectively incorporate skill challenges or the, or the equivalent into a D20-type game? Well, in my experience, I hate saying no, but the answer is still kind of no. <laughs> in general, specifically D&D, it gives you all the skills. I mean, if we're going back to 3-5 era, there was a zillion and a half skills that you could use in a, in a ton of different ways. If we're in the 4th edition or 5th edition era, you have a much more streamlined amount of skills but you can use them more creatively. Fourth edition gave us the quote unquote skill challenge mechanic, although Andrew specifically said in his email to ignore that one. A lot of times in my experience, it just boils down to on one hand, telling your players, okay, we're doing a skill challenge now. So you have to do a skill challenge now. Although that takes you out of the the game, it makes it a little less organic. I've tried a couple times to do a skill challenge without telling people it's a skill challenge. But experienced players figure that out in about two seconds. I was dealing with inexperienced players and I tried to do skill challenges without telling them. And it never worked. And it was just like a screeching halt in the middle of the game. And I would eventually just say, we're doing a skill challenge. I need you guys to come up with skills that you want to use here so we can progress forward. Now, maybe that was my failing in the way I set it up, but from talking to other people on Twitter and Facebook and Google, I I get the idea that it's a pretty common theme that the ideas of skill challenges are cool, but the execution 
it's hard to do right. I think for me, really, skill challenges come down to social combat. And fate does that pretty well. Is it, it literally is combat by another name. Your problem is X. You attack it different ways. So it may be through history or arcana or stealth or seduction. But you roll a skill check. You have an armor class, which in this case is a DC. If you succeed, you lower the resistance down, hit points. You lower it down enough before you are defeated, you win. Right. So even skill challenges were combat just reskinned in a different way. And I think that's what, in fourth edition specifically, I think that's what they were going for. So if you just take that ideology and you move it over, that's a way to design a skill challenge is design it like a combat. What is their opposition? In one case, it's animated armor. In another case, it's a guard that um, doesn't like your political faction. How do you defeat that? You have to attack it with skills, and it can be intimidation or seduction or stealth or bribery or whatever. You set the DC. You set the number of times you have to succeed before a certain thing happens, which could be time. Maybe you only have three checks before the guard switch, and you've lost any progress you've made. Or you fail so badly that you piss the guy off so he won't help you, and then you try your best to role play it out. And and the way that I would suggest you do that is if the role play justifies it, give automatic successes or automatic failures. So if you've decided in your head super quickly, okay, this is a guard, he hates his life, he wants to leave home, he wants to be an adventurer, this is not the job he wanted, and but it, but he's, you know, but he's considering himself an honest man. Okay, I, I decided decide all that in a micro fraction. And my characters role play out their social skills. Well, I'm going to try to regale him with tales of adventure and, and convince him that he should just leave his post right now and go into the wilderness and become the hero he was born to be. If somebody comes up with that, it just happens. All right, he draws your short sword off of your belt gives you the salute and walks off into his destiny and is quickly eaten by an owlbear. But rather than stopping the game and going, okay, we're going to roll a skill to see how well that works. No, you were right. You were right freaking on. You get that win. And that's going to make it feel like a role play challenge, even though it was fed up as a skill challenge. Or if they come up, if they do the exact opposite and they try to talk about how he should go home to his loving wife and his seven kids and he's a good father. And, you know, what's, What's it going to hurt if, if you let us into the vault? Here's an extra 20 gold. It's going to change your life. If, if I've decided in my head that that's not the person that he is, then no, it's over. You have screwed up. And unless you kill this guy, you're not getting in until the guards switch over. And just let, let role play win without skill checks if it justifies itself. That's definitely one good way to do it. And of course, that requires more experienced role players. And it requires these players to be more willing to act things out. And as we've talked about a couple times, not everyone is always super comfortable doing that. And that's why uh, frequently you use the dice to supplement that or to replace that. We've talked plenty of times about... Correct. You don't want to, you don't want to penalize someone for bad role playing if it's just they're just not personally confident. Right. That's not fair to penalize them. But I do think it's okay to reward someone. And, and even if they don't necessarily role play it out, but if they just say, my character is going to target his, his sense of adventure, they don't necessarily have to act in character or use a cool voice. 
but if they use the right avenue, then I sh- then I should reward that. And to jump to your point, I think it would be okay to even tell them, you know, I'd set this up as a skill challenge, but you were right on. So I'm not even going to make you roll. Great job. You've succeeded. The guard walks off. You guys get in so that you kind of train them that in certain situations, I'm after role play, whether you do it in first person or third person, but drawing your sword isn't always the answer. Definitely. Definitely. Now through all of that though, we have really kind of been reinforcing the fact that we're still using the, the combat mindset and the skill mindset as built into the game, specifically D&D, because that's what we're talking about. Andrew's question that he wrapped up with was, well, his statement, I should say, was that the skill mechanics tend to be lacking, uh, and it, he feels like it's just one mechanic to cover everything, social interaction, exploration, finding clues and investigating things. And on one sense, I would agree with him. On another, though, I, I don't want to try to rewrite or add more complication to the rules than there has to be. And that's coming from me as the crunchy guy who likes all those rules. Uh, I, I don't want to m- make myself do more work as the GM, but I do understand and appreciate the fact that a lot of times I want to see more detective work, more skill usage, more creativeness at the table. So I think that's more my responsibility as the GM to try to coax that out of people and how to give my players that situation that prompts them to give that to me, fosters that, that mindset. And I think that, uh, I think the 13th age does, does a good job of that with their background situation where they're not uh, delineated out ahead of time. You just say, I'm a banker. I've been a banker for a while. So I get four points in banker and then, you challenge your players. How do you make that work here? How do you say that being a banker for seven years of your life gives you an advantage here? And it makes it more of a puzzle, a role play challenge, and not necessarily a skill check. There's still a role, but often the, the bonuses, even at first level, are so high that if you find a good way to put it together, you're probably going to succeed on that role, barring, you know, I mean, it happens. There's, there's a random chance there. But I, that's one reason I really like backgrounds and like right now we're running patreon games uh we're we're, we're on our third one my the second one or third one's gonna be D 5e again when i start running a D 5e game at my house i'm going to use 13th age backgrounds i'm not going to use proficiency and skills because i just like that better but i don't want to start messing with house rules for these patreon games yet i don't know the system well enough to know how i have to to accommodate for that but I just think 13th Age's background system, it's the best skill system I've ever experienced. And I'm going to keep using it until I find a better one. So there is one good answer for Andrew there. The 13th Age skill system uh, is a good way to mix uh, your regular skills uh, plus a little bit of role playing. And it prompts uh, more creative use of your skills across a variety of scenarios, social interaction and exploration, investigation, all that kind of stuff. I would even go so far as to say that the way 5th edition is being presented right now, uh, it gives you a little more license to use your stats creatively. Now, you're still working within the, the construct of 
you know, using DEX for agility-based things and using intelligence for mental-based things. But when it says in the book, okay, if you're using a skill, but you're if you're intimidating somebody, sure, that would normally be charisma. But let's say you're intimidating them with a feat of strength. Well, if you can argue it and role play it, use your strength modifier for that check instead. So there's a little bit more freedom in that, but it's not as much as 13th Age gives you. Yep, I would agree with that. I also came up with our nicknames. You are Captain Crunch and I'm Grandmaster Fluff. I'm not sure how I feel about that. I'm pretty much all in on that one. I think I like it, but it is after 11, so <laughs> my, uh, my perception might be a little skewed right now. Yeah, well, this was a social challenge. Uh, so you need to roll your defense against my charisma here. I'm trying to influence your decision uh, <laughs> to do something that's probably not in your best interest. And it will be recorded for everyone yeah. to hear. So if you fail, it's long term here. We're like, we're all in on this. But do I have a penalty because I'm feeling kind of tired and loopy right now? Yes, there's a negative five penalty. Or, or you can have disadvantage. We'll go fit five of you. You have disadvantage on the roll. Are you going to be known from this point on as Captain Crunch. Oh, yeah. All right, hold on. All right, I'm rolling with disadvantage here, guys. I got an 11. Oh, no, my charisma is much higher than that. At least I think so. Yet. Hey, I'm Grandmaster Fluff. All right, well, so let it be said, so let it be done. Uh, the dice the dice spoke. As it is said, as it shall be, so saith the thing. All right, so... Didn't I just say that? I think so. But I had to I had to re sum up. That's kind of my thing. <laughs> so this episode went a little bit different than we had planned because uh, we ended up talking more about these redos than we thought. We thought we'd get through them really quickly, and then we would have some other topics. Uh, but I, I think they prompted some interesting discussion. I'm very excited about the, this episode. I think it'll be a good one. So thank you to everyone, Dean, Peter, Andrew, and James, uh, for sending stuff in. We do have a couple new questions that we are, I guess, now going to hit on our next episode. And then I just want to quickly close with that. We have sort of an embarrassment of riches here recently with some amazing guests that want to be a part of our show. So we have three, maybe even four another interview, not necessarily interviews as much as um, discussions with guests that we are working on that we hope to bring to you in the coming weeks. So thank you all for your support, whether that be just giving us a listen, telling a friend, Facebook likes, follow us on Twitter, whatever, uh, up to those who, who give us some cash through Patreon. Your support is what's allowing us to do these cool and amazing things. And, uh, and I thank you for it. Caleb, do you have any last words before we uh, wrap this one up, put a bow on it? I think we covered a lot of great stuff tonight. As Michael said, thank you for everybody that is listening, that is helping us not just be talking into a vacuum. Um, we always love your comments, uh, whether on Facebook, Google+, Twitter, all that good stuff. Uh, the more you give us, the more we have to talk about on the show. So please always uh, throw us your comments, even if it's just a sentence or two or a rough idea. It's always going to work together, and we always appreciate it. Thank you so much. Absolutely. So I don't need to sum up that sum up. So uh, this has been Michael. And this is Caleb. And we'll see you next time. You can give us feedback and comments on our website, therpgacademy.com. You can listen to previous podcasts on our website and subscribe to new ones on iTunes. 
If you have a suggestion for a table topic, we'd love to hear it. Email us at podcast at the rpgacademy.com or connect with us. We're on Twitter at the RPG Academy. We're on Facebook at facebook.com slash the RPG Academy. We also have a Google Plus page, the RPG Academy. As always, thanks for listening. And remember, if you're having fun, you're doing it right.